All right, welcome everyone in podcast land to episode 15, Melanoma and Zebrafish. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannat, and this is the one and only Stem Cell Podcast. Yosef, my man, what's up? Oh, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing uh, I'm doing well. I am, uh, uh, yeah, I'm well. I, I'm looking forward to spring, and it's on its way, so I'm good, man. I'm ready to go. I, you? Uh, yeah, I, I feel like I'm just stuck. We're stuck in a polar vor- vortex over here. Spring's never coming. But. Sucks. It really sucks. <laughs> Oh well, <laughs> but on a, on a on a positive note, we have an amazingly fantastic guest today on the podcast, which is in line with our title, melanoma and zebrafish. We have Dr. Leonard Zahn, uh, who will talk about uh, his foray uh, into you know stem cell research and cancer research using zebrafish as a model system, and so they're a really cool fish and a really cool system, uh, and you know will it's really really fun and it'll be an exciting interview i think and i'm really looking forward to it yeah i, I really like the whole ze- zebra fish as the uh british uh cohorts like to say uh i love the way they say zebra fish as opposed to zebra fish but um it's a great model you can uh they breed really fast and you could house a lot of them and uh they're clear which is also nice but i i also i I think I have transgenic fish as well. I have these glowfish. Did you know they have glowfish now that uh, glow in the dark? If you put a oh really light, like a GFP fish type thing? Yeah, you could buy them in the store. I, I have like about six of them. Sitting, I'm looking at them right now. You, you shine the black light on. I can't be, believe the FDA passed on it, but yeah, you can buy glow in the dark fish now. And as soon as I heard that, I went to the store and bought them. <laughs> if if you put UV on the fish too much, does it give them melanoma? No, it does not. <laughs> That'd be too right, elegant sorry. of a model. So, uh, yeah, um, I'm looking right, forward so, to that. You know what, let's let's save the time for our guest. So let's let's go through the papers quick. I just want to say uh, before we start to for everyone out there, uh, uh, please keep the emails and the comments coming in. Thank you at stemcellpodcast.com, stemcellpodcast at gmail dot com. Go to the website now, uh, stemcellpodcast.com. Um, if you click on the episode. And this will be starting from last episode, so episode 14 and going forward. Uh, when you click on it, it'll bring up the uh, summary of the episode. And each uh, each paper, Yosef and I discuss, you'll have the link there. So you'll be able to go and click and try and read more about our topic, whichever topics you're interested in, uh, which is a really cool tool. So go to the website, check it out. You can also register for the Saratoga Stem Cell Conference, nextgenstemcell.com. If you haven't already, go out and register we're getting a good turnout so far. We want you there. Now, with that, Yos, why don't we kick it off, uh, go start the uh, science roundup so we yeah. can get to our guests. Yeah, I'd also like to say, uh, uh, given that um, we've gotten some great feedback online, uh, Tony and Brad, and uh, we've gotten some emails, um, people that uh, we're getting good feedback, and uh, we'll hopefully in future episodes get to interact with you more, maybe uh, even interview uh, uh, one of our listeners at some point. So that's also a possibility. But uh, on to the science roundup. Um, In Hawaii, the Mauna Loa Observatory, uh, just uh, they've been tracking CO2 levels, uh, carbon dioxide uh, in this heat-trapping gas uh, that apparently 
is for some reason uh, controversial as a heat trapping gas, but there is no controversy. That's what it is. It's a greenhouse gas. Uh, we have reached the ominous level of 400 parts per million last year, and uh, it hasn't been that way in, uh, I think, like 3 million years. So uh, in 1958, when it uh, started charting this, it was at 313 parts per million. So uh, uh, scientists, I think 380.org is uh, one of the organizations that warn not to go above that level because it's never been that high in human history. So now we're at the 400 level uh, from 313 in the 50s. So uh, let's just say being at the 400 level is not good, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, yeah, it's not good. I guess it's good for people who uh, mine carbon, uh, you know, uh, people in the fossil fuel industry, but for uh, the, the rest of the population, it's it's causing acidification of the oceans, which is bad for crustaceans and all sorts of heat trapping uh, effects. But uh, there's not really any uh, debate as to the fact that the uh, CO2 is a heat trapping gas um, and that we're releasing more of it into the air. It's I guess the debate is the effects of that um, man-made uh, increase in fossil in co2 levels so uh it's an ominous number 400 uh it's never been done before uh in human history so that happened last year so uh not good news <laughs> uh there was a science translational medicine study showing that a microbicide gel containing integrase inhibitors this is uh, uh in the context of hiv infection in female macaque monkeys so applying this microbicide gel um after sex uh, can essentially protect the monkeys uh, from HIV infection. It's called Raltagraver. Raltagraver, I guess. Uh, Gravier. Uh, it's uh, a microbicide uh, that essentially, they, it's kind of funny, but they, they rubbed it on the uh, lady parts of the monkeys after uh, sex for a few weeks and uh, showed that it protected against HIV infection. So... Uh, you know, I heard about this on, on Real Time with Bill Maher. Yeah, he, and, uh, <laughs> he said it in the context of, of a joke, yeah. and I thought he was joking. And then I looked it up, and in fact, it wasn't a joke. So there you go. Science translational medicine. So uh, you wow. can find that there. Uh, did you see in Cell Stem Cell they were able to generate a rat um, uh, haploid e embryonic stem cells. Did you see I that? I saw that. I did. Yeah. Um, and uh, that should be a new useful tool because uh, when you're haploid or having one, you know, half the amount of uh, uh, chromosomes that uh, a somat somatic cell uh, has, you can uh, sort of uh, model diseases more because you have less backup mechanisms. So uh, we should, those should be uh, useful for. Uh, disease modeling in the future. So uh, we'll see how that pans out. So you can find that in cell stem cell in March. Um, there was also a science article um, this month showing a 2.6 and 2.2 angstrom resolution of the Cas9 enzymes. Uh, you know, those uh, critical player in the CRISPR system CRISPR, that we, yeah. we keep talking about, the gene editing technique. Uh, so uh, we're, we're getting at the Cas9 enzyme. That seems to be the linchpin of that whole system. And uh, so they were able to get the crystal structure and uh, get down to that resolution um 
there uh, was, I don't know if you saw this, uh, scientists recently uh, saw the cosmic, uh, uh, the, the bicep uh, system. Uh, it's B-I-C-E-P. It's a... Um, Basically, they've been uh, imaging the background uh, intergalactic uh, waves, and they were able to see evidence of the Big Bang theories, uh, the the fundamentals of the Big Bang theory, uh, showing these primordial gravitational waves, uh, which is sort of bringing us closer to a theory of everything, uh, using uh, bringing together the quantum world and the general relativity uh, debates together. Uh, this model of inflation is now being confirmed. Uh, uh, the, the universe expanding from the Big Bang, uh, this inflation model. Uh, so we now have some of the first signs of that, uh, being able to observe that, which is what science is all about, observations, right? Moving on, uh, there was also a PLOS study, um, a PLOS computational biology study, uh, linking the aut- rising autism rates with congenital for malformations of the genitals and uh, in males across the country. So they were able to, to basically track the rising rates in autism with um, congenital um, defects in the, the genitals, including micropenis, which I didn't know was uh, a thing, uh, hypospadia, which I'd uh, heard of, and descended testicles. Um, so uh, every 1% increase in these sort of malformations correlated with a 283% increase in autism rates. So uh, they're saying that this is sort of a way of uh, these these things uh, probably correlate with um, environmental factors that are causing these malformations and is related to autism. So I thought that was interesting. I, I read that because I'm, I'm in this field and... Um the, the field is shifting to environment a lot. They're, they're saying that greater than 50% of the risk now they believe is coming from environment and is no longer genetic. So they feel that genetics have been kind of overrepresented, yeah. uh, uh, overestimated really, and underestimated the whole effect of environment. So this is another study that's suggesting that environment environmental toxins – uh, can can have a, a major influence in in autism. I, this got a lot of press everywhere. It was in it was in major news outlets. I saw. Yep. Uh, moving on, there are a journal of infectious um, uh, emerging in, infections. Uh, this is a CDC uh, publication, just basically uh, showing a alarming. Uh, increase in the uh, incidences of cephalosporin-resistant gonorrhea in 17 cities uh, from 1991 to 2006. Uh, So uh, that was kind of strange. The CDC also um, released something this month uh, describing the first HIV transmission between two lesbians. Uh, so I saw that. Yeah. So the CDC is uh, releasing some scary stats on both gonorrhea and HIV transmission between, I guess, these two uh, women were, uh, y- you know, uh, you know, having intercourse during uh, their periods and uh, that disease was able to spread via that. So um, you're not safe as a lesbian um uh, from Mm. HIV transmission. Um, There was a nature study uh, recently showing that the FTO gene interacts with IRX3 to increase obesity. Uh, IRX3 um, 
knockout mice were leaner with more brown fat and smaller fat cells and uh, were resistant to a high-fat diet and uh, were better able to process glucose. So, um, yeah, and you only need to knock out this IRX gene in the hypothalamus to show these effects. So, uh, Brown fat's where it's at? Is that yeah, the idea? That's, that's, yeah, brown fat's the good fat. Um, there's some of it in humans and our necks and stuff. So, uh, yeah, the, uh, the FTO intron mutations are known to increase uh, the risk of obesity, but this brought it to another interacting partner called IRX3. So you can find that in nature. Uh, there was also a nature article uh, uh, describing uh, the ex- the possibility that there may be uh, huge swaths of water about the size of all the oceans deep within the Earth's crust, uh, deep within the Earth. They found this uh, little crystal of ring woodite, which is um, a high-pressured form of olivine. So uh, it's it's like finding a diamond. But uh, it's it's a relic from deep within the Earth, uh, from the transition zone, uh, so about 660 kilometers deep, and it came from a riverbed in Brazil, and they found uh, evidence of water in this crystal. Uh, so there could be, you know, deep within the Earth's crust, a whole bunch of water. Uh, so that's interesting. Wow. I thought uh, there was. What's our favorite journal? PNAS. Yes, a PNAS study showing that. Uh, telomere length can predict how long it takes older men to recover from a stressful situation. So telomeres are like uh, these sort of protecting uh, parts of the chromosomes. Uh, they compare them to like the tips of shoelaces, that little plastic tip uh, covering, and they sh- shorten over time. And um, this study showed that a shorter telomere, which um, is a sign of aging as well, um, can uh, predict how uh, these men recover from uh, stressful situations. And uh, this Hmm. is perhaps due to a higher allostatic load. Um, And there was a human molecular genetics study uh, recreating a mouse model of uh, XQ22.1 deletion syndrome. And this gave epilepsy and cleft palate in females and the males died at birth. So the first human model of that. Uh, Very quickly, a J-neuro study showing why warm caresses feel good because of these C tactile fibers, which fired more frequently when uh, strokes were fired at a skin temperature, showing that these uh, fibers have a role in evolutionary uh, importance of uh, social interactions uh, that rely on touch. So I thought that was interesting. And uh, finally, a Nature article in Nature Medicine, sorry, uh, describing a blood test to identify Alzheimer's disease within three years. They used uh, 10 lipids within the blood to predict the onset of disease with up to 90% accuracy. And a lot I of, saw that. Yeah, a lot of these lipids were... I mean, a test for Alzheimer's would be a game changer. Um, so uh, We talked about this on one of our episodes. If we had a predictor of Alzheimer's, would we, would we want to know? I said I would not. Yeah, uh, this one uh, would let you know within three years and... Uh, at that point, I feel like, uh, you kind of may want to know, you may not want to know when you're 16 and living life, but maybe when you're True. 80, you want to know in five years, if you're going to be forgetting your keys all around. So, um, I don't know, uh, that, that was a major breakthrough. So, uh, metabolites, metabolites, metabolites. 
And by the way, from the, from what you said, I hate when I have a high allostatic load. By the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, well, on that hopefully note, your thank TLM- you, Joseph. <laughs> let me let me run through these quick because we're going to get uh, Doctor Zahn on very very shortly. Um, there was an essay uh, written. I thought this was interesting. Uh, it was by Maureen Condick. She's a neurobiologist. I think she's at Utah, and it's called "Confusions About Totipotency." Stem cells are not embryos. And so basically it's this, when does life start? What's the, what is a stem cell? Is it really an embryo? And she tries to explain the differences saying that the definition of totipotency needs to be uh, clarified, that there should be two definitions of totipotency, um, one being capable of developing into a complete organism, which would be the embryo, and then um, the other one is differentiating into any of its cells. And so in, in those two different definitions for totipotency, you can maybe alleviate the difference between is a stem cell an embryo. This is her. So you can go on and read this. Uh, her name is Maureen Kondik, and it was in the public disclosure. It's just an essay I thought it was very interesting for stem cell biologists. Mm. Um, a study in nature, cell autonomous correction of ring chromosomes in human-induced pluripotent stem cells. Joseph, did you know what a ring chromosome is? I didn't know what they were. No, no, I've heard Ring it. chromosomes, I, yeah. I guess, are these structural aberrations in chromosomes that are associated with birth defects and mental disability. Uh, and, and let's see here. So they form after fusion of the long and short arms of the chromosome. Mm-hmm. And they're associated with, like, well, very large terminal deletions. Hmm. Uh, and so what, what they did here is they took patients with these rings and they generated IPS and what they found was that the large deletions basically were gone so they in the new IPS cells these cells lost the abnormal chromosome and they duplicated the wild type homolog through what's called compensatory uniparental disomy which is I guess when you get two chromosomes from the same parent and so what they had now was these karyotypically normal IPS cells for these corrected chromosome. And so they suggest that they have a fundamentally different function of cellular reprogramming as means of chromosome therapy to kind of reverse uh, this loss of function across many genes where there's this deletion. And so they say they provide uh, an attractable cellular system for studying mechanisms of chromosome or number control uh, which is critical in a lot of different diseases. So I thought that was very interesting. Uh, this last author is Anthony Winshaw, uh, and Shinya Yamanaka and Arnold Crickstein are also on the paper. So that's in Nature. Um, the next story is out of Ju Wang's lab, Joe Wang's lab. So we had Asif Maruf on and Dr. Justin and Machida on, and we talked about ALS and how stem cells are being used to model ALS. And... Uh, Dr. Maruf was telling us about this C9 ORP72 repeat. Remember that, Yosef, that it's the most common genetic cause of ALS and frontal temporal dementia, but a lot of people don't have any idea what the hell this mutation does and how it causes these diseases. So in this paper, the title is C9 ORP72, Nucleotide Repeat Structures Initiate Molecular Cascades of Disease. Uh, In this paper, they go into a molecular mechanism as to why and how that repeat causes a disease. It's very interesting, and uh, and I won't go into the detail, but basically what happens is they form this weird uh, quadruplex, this repeat of DNA and RNA, 
uh, and it causes an accumulation of transcripts that are get aborted. So you just basically get this buildup of transcripts. And this then goes on to cause a lot of nuclear stress, and then it leads to disease and such. So it's a very detailed molecular mechanism how, how that nucleotide repeat is bad, which is a very important uh, breakthrough in, this, in the field of neurodegenerative medicine because people didn't understand. They know that if it's there, it's bad, but they didn't know why. Mm. So very, very interesting. That's in Nature, uh, March 13th. Um, paper out of Sean Morrison. Sorry, a paper out of Sean Morrison's lab in Nature. Man, Dr. Morrison just puts out these papers in Nature. Um, hematopoietic stem cells require a highly regulated protein synthesis rate. Did you see this, Joseph? They were able to like monitor protein synthesis in real time and quantitate it. Hmm. So they were actually used a modified pyromycin technique. I don't really quite understand it, but they're able to actually quantify how much protein is being produced by out by an hour, by you know hours and by time. So you should check it out in Nature. Um, again, it's out of uh, his lab. And then lastly, there was a pub. There was a paper in Nature Communications talking about the high efficiency motor neuron differentiation from human IPS and the function of islet one in those uh, in those cells. Um, that was out of uh, uh, Fei Wang's lab. So Nature Communications, go check out how they were able to make a lot of motor neurons from. Uh, uh, I uh, pluripotent stem cells. Let's end it there, Yos. Uh, what do you think? Uh, should we uh, bring on our guest here? All right, Chris. Why don't you bring on our guest? All right, Yosef. So we have another fantastic guest joining the Stem Cell Podcast today. Uh, the guest is Dr. Leonard Zahn. Dr. Zahn is a cancer researcher at Harvard Medical School and a practicing hematologist at the Children's Hospital in Boston. He is the Grousebeck Professor of Pediatric Medicine at Harvard Medical School an investigator with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and the director of the stem cell program at Children's Hospital Boston. All of my old jobs, Yosef. Yeah. Um, doc, uh, Dr. Zahn is the founder, the founder and past president of the International Society for Stem Cell Research. We talk about the ISSCR a bunch on the show, and he's chair of the Harvard Stem Cell Institute's executive committee. And uh, Dr. Zahn is internationally recognized for his research in the, in the field of stem cell biology and cancer genetics. He'll, he'll talk a bit more in a minute about that. A couple avenues he focuses on is cancer biology using the zebrafish as a model organism, which is a really cool system which we'll, he'll get into, and identifying genes that direct stem cells to become cancers or develop into specialized blood cells. Um, in the hopes of identifying possible cure for cancers and other disease. So with that, I will stop, and I am proud to welcome Dr. Leonard Zahn to the show. Welcome aboard. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. No problem. So um, let's, start, let's start with your work. You, you know, you've been in this field. You, you've seen it kind of emerge and blow up, if you say, and turn into this, this amazing field that it has been. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit of your experience in the stem cell field, how you got into stem cells, and then you know, transition into what your lab focuses on. Sure. So um, basically, uh, I feel that I've been doing stem cell research for a very long time, probably since 1991. And when I started my laboratory, and uh, at the time, I had cloned a gene uh, called GATA1 that's the master regulator of the red blood cell lineage. And I did this in Stu Orkin's lab when I was a postdoc, and I was kind of looking for what I should do next. And it was very exciting at the time to think about transcription. This was a transcription factor. And so I wanted to figure out how this gene got turned on. 
and maybe it was being turned on in a stem cell so that the stem cells could become red blood cells. Um, and then I started to think about it in terms of embryos and how embryos make tissues. And at a certain point, an embryo needs to make a blood island, and this gene would be turned on. And so I thought that must be when the stem cells are arising and we would be able to follow these to become blood cells. So uh, initially I thought I would do mouse genetics, um, but then quickly realized that there were very few opportunities at the time to look at seven-and-a-half-day mouse embryos. A uh, very small number of embryos could be obtained, and it was going to be difficult to do um, uh, biochemistry on those embryos. And so then um, a friend of mine, uh, Jerry Thompson, who's now at Stony Brook, thought that it would be exciting to work on a lower vertebrate. And uh, you would have large number of uh, embryos available because they're externally fertilized, perhaps. And then um, you would be able to do genetics, maybe, or do biochemistry to understand how the blood cells were forming. And you could just follow a one-cell embryo all the way until it makes a blood island, and that would be uh, very exciting. So um, uh, initially, I started working on frogs. Um, to see if they would be a good model system and you could get thousands of embryos. And it was uh, uh, actually, we published a number of papers on the uh, Xenopus system. Uh, but then pretty quickly in 1993, um, I realized that the zebrafish would be an excellent model. Um, each of the zebrafish parents, the mothers, have uh, 300 babies per week. So you get plenty of embryos. 300 are- babies per week, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they're um, optically transparent, so you can uh, just watch all the organs develop under a light microscope. And, uh, you know, we uh, started to get some zebrafish in and uh, and do some experiments. And uh, this really transformed my lab. Uh, we became one of the earliest zebrafish labs doing uh, stem cell biology or even disease uh, research. And um, over the years, we focused on blood diseases, um, particularly um, finding mutant fish that can't make blood in the hopes of finding interesting genes that would be involved in, uh, in patients. And uh, we were able to find uh, four mutant fish that had an anemia, and we figured out the gene. And then when we uh, sequenced humans who had particular types of anemias, they were mutated in the same gene. So we ended up discovering four new human disease gene, uh, genes as a result of our fish. And then um, roughly about nine years ago or so, we decided that um, it might be interesting to study the fish as a cancer model. And uh, at the time, um, another friend, Tom Look, who's a hematologist also, uh, was interested in cancer research in the fish, and he moved to Harvard. And so the two of us started to uh, investigate whether the fish could be a model. And uh, we made the first model of uh, lymphoma in the zebrafish using MYC and driving it on a specific lymphocyte-specific uh, gene. Um, and then um, over the years, we started doing melanoma research, and uh, all that has come uh, full circle, and we're doing a lot of research in this area and very excited about it. Can I ask how you uh, make a transgenic zebrafish? Because you don't have zebrafish stem cells like we do with the mice, so uh, how is that happening? Yeah, so... Um, it's a pretty interesting technique. You basically set up a microinjector, and you microinject the DNA into the one-cell embryo. And uh, the DNA um, is taken up, 
and integrates into the genome. And then uh, you can uh, develop stable transgenics in the next generation because some of the events of integration have happened in the germ cells. And so you just mate the fish together, and then they'll produce uh, transgenic fish. And we have fish now that have fluorescent colors in almost all different stem cell uh, components, as well as the differentiated blood cells. So it's uh, very exciting to see them visually because you can watch the stem cells migrate and, and graft in different tissues. So it's is, very exciting. Is, is there a cell culture system for zebrafish? Yeah, so we do. You know, we've copied a lot of what we know about from the uh, mammals, um, particularly in the mouse. And so um, we actually have zebrafish uh, blood progenitor cultures. Um, and we also can culture zebrafish melanoma cell lines. Um, and this is very similar to what you would do in a uh, mammal. Uh, we even can do a marrow transplant on a fish, uh, just like you would do in a mouse. Wow. So I have a little bit more of a, uh, I guess this is a little more of a casual question about the fish, because for everyone out there, you guys got to go online, look up Dr. Zahn's site, and see these this setup. You can see a little bit. How many fish do you have there currently? Yeah, well, um, I actually currently have two laboratories. Um, one is over at Children's Hospital, and the other is over at Harvard Main Campus in the Fairchild Building. And uh, basically, both facilities have about 300,000 fish in them. 300,000 wow. fish. Yeah, so you can take a, a small tank and put about 70 fish in it. And so it's an amazing thing to see because... Um, every single tank has a slightly different strain um, that's been either engineered or, or is modeling a particular disease. Uh, for cancer work, it's amazing because you can have 70 animals with cancer in one single tank. So it's quite, um, wow. you know, the statistics that you can do for cancer research are really amazing. Every one of our statistical arms usually has 100 fish in it. Wow. <laughs> and, and how many, do they get fed once a day, Len, or a couple times well, a day? And they, uh, most of the time, we're feeding the fish three times a day. Um, sometimes on the weekends, we'll do twice a day. And then recently, um, there's been a number of companies who've gotten into this, and there are robots now that will actually feed <laughs> the fish. And so some of our babies get fed, you know, seven times a day, um, just as a little uh, feeding, and that um, that really helps their growth, and they'll uh, become. Um, sexually mature at about two to three months of age. And so people are now watching these fish as their health has been improved by these feeding schedules go even more and more quickly. Wow, that's, that's I, amazing. I have to say, so, as uh, somebody who works with mice, I, I'm really jealous of your end values of uh, 70 <laughs> to 100. <I'm, laughs> we could only it, hope to get those kind amazing. of numbers. <laughs> I think the other part about it is the cost. Is um, You know, we have... Um, probably about 300 or 400 mouse cages in my lab. Um, but, you know, when I look at the cost of the 300 or 400 cages, it's probably more than what I spend on taking care of the zebrafish and the, for the entire facility, all 300,000 animals. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, you know, in the context of the melanoma, could you just elaborate a little bit for the audience? Just give us a little, uh, you know, give us a quick synop synopsis on the cancer, on the disease itself, and then what you've, what you've learned, you know, in your research and uh, what you see as, as a, maybe a potential uh, therapeutic or something down the road for what you've learned from, from this disease? Sure. Well, it's been an exciting ride. Um, so just to say, you know, as um, Tom Luck and I headed into the cancer field, um, we started uh, being asked to model different types of cancer. And uh, we did lymphoma, we did muscle tumors, 
He has a neuroblastoma model. There's a pancreatic cancer model. And um, we wanted something that was very facile to study genetically. And melanoma is an interesting disease. It's a devastating disease if it's metastatic. The therapies are very poor. And so we hoped that we would be able to discover some therapies to treat uh, metastatic melanoma. Um, what I did is I decided as a laboratory, we're going to try to focus on melanoma because then you can go very deep into the studies. And we developed a number of tools to let us uh, uh, do research on, uh, on melanoma. So, um, so the, the whole thing started with Liz Patton, who is a, was a postdoc in my lab now, a, a professor at University of Edinburgh. And um, what we decided was um, we wanted to model the human disease. If you have a mole, and everybody has moles, or also called nevi, um, you have a 95% chance of having an activating mutation in BRAF or in uh, NRAS. And um, these mutations cause the proliferation of the melanocytes in the skin, uh, but then luckily you have a senescence mechanisms which blocks the uh, tremendous proliferation of these, uh, of these moles, so they reach a size and they eventually just stop. So what we did is we took uh, the most common mutation, which is BRAF V600E. We took the human gene and we coupled it to a melanocyte-specific promoter in the MITF gene. So MITF is a DNA binding protein. It's the master regulator of the melanocyte lineage. And so when you drive BRAF off of this promoter, um, the fish develop moles. So we were very excited. Um, we had the first animal model of moles. Um, but unfortunately, none of our fish ever got melanoma. Um, and luckily for us, we had also created a zebrafish that was the P53 mutant. And P53 is the most common tumor suppressor gene in humans. And so when you mate the P53 mutant to the fish that's expressing the human BRAF V600E allele, then the fish gets melanoma. And um, as you may know, our, our labs uh, made Affymetrix chips for zebrafish. Uh, we call them fish and chips. <laughs> and, uh, and we're able to show that the zebrafish melanomas really resemble very similarly to the human uh, melanomas based on gene expression signatures. So we actually have a wonderful model. Um, the model develops um, melanoma over a, um, a six to eight month period of time and um, we started to investigate ways that we could study genes that would be participating in melanoma. So um, we had two nature papers actually both in the same issue. It was a very exciting issue for us. We got the cover also um, and um, in those two stories I think they highlight how the melanomas can be used. So in one of the stories, um, there was a known gene on chromosome 1 of humans that participated in melanoma because 30% of patients had an amplification of that chromosome. But unfortunately, there were 54 genes in the interval, and nobody knew which gene was actually the melanoma gene. So what we did is we developed a system to probe whether a gene could be an activator or a suppressor of uh, melanoma in our fish. So what we did is we took our fish, the BRAF P53 model, and now we mated it to a mutant in MITF itself. So this fish had no pigmentation at all. And in fact, it never got melanoma because the stem cells uh, for the melanocytes weren't there. 
And um, we then developed a plasmid, which we call the Mini Cooper plasmid. <laughs> so on one side of the plasmid was a rescuing mini gene for MITF. And on the other side, you could put any gene you want to test to see if it would accelerate melanoma. And so we would shoot this plasmid into our triple fish, BRAF P53 and MITF mutant, and then any melanocyte that would get rescued because now it had the melanocyte gene, the MITF gene on it, would also overexpress this uh, interesting oncogene that you wanted to test. So what we did is we cloned all 54 genes from the human chromosome into this vector, shot them up into fish, and we just counted melanomas. And we ended up with like 30,000 fish in this experiment. It was total brute force. But one gene was the only gene to cause melanoma. And it turned out to be a very interesting gene called SETDB1, which is an epigenetic regulator and controls whether genes are turned on or turned off. And we were able to find that the targets of this were certain genes called the Hox genes or also genes that were involved in the stem cells for the melanocyte lineage. And uh, that turned out to be very exciting because this enzyme might be able to be inhibited by chemical inhibitors. So we can look into the future and see maybe that uh, companies uh, uh, may be able to develop inhibitors there. And then the second story um, was a... um, we were able to find that the uh, chemicals were, um, uh, we were able to look for chemicals that would get rid of the neural crest stem cells in a fish embryo. And we hoped that those chemicals could be good anti-melanoma therapies. So um, we found one chemical, um, which is called leflunamide, and this is an arthritis drug that people take. And when you give this drug, it gets rid of the melanocyte lineage and all of the neural crest cells in this fish embryo. And then we showed in human tumor xenografts in nude mice that this was a great anti-melanoma drug. And if you combine this with a BRAF inhibitor, um, and I should say BRAF inhibitors are popular these days, uh, they lead to a drop in, uh, they, they really cause the tumor to shrink. But unfortunately, six months later, uh, the patient relapses. Um, but anyway, if you combine leflunamide plus the BRAF inhibitor, um, this would be a great uh, therapy because 40% of our mice had absolutely no tumors at all. Wow. Is it, is, so then... Is it, I'm sorry. Is this, uh, sorry. Uh, is this uh, arthritis drug, is this an anti-inflammatory drug or...? It is an anti-inflammatory drug. It affects nucleotide metabolism and it lowers... Um, uh, nucleotides in B cells. So the B cells do not work that well. And uh, the active metabolite of leflunamide just came online from Sanofi, and they're using that for uh, multiple sclerosis uh, treatments. Hmm. So um, we think that what happens is that the drug lowers nucleotides, and there's a response in transcription where pausing of neural crest genes and proliferative genes happens as a result of being treated. And uh, the neural crest cells have a paralyzing identity crisis, <laughs> and so they die. And um, we've recently worked out the mechanism in a paper that we're hopefully going to send off pretty soon of, um, of a complex that actually is the sensor for the low nucleotides that um, is responsible for the transcriptional pausing. The exciting part about this is that we've taken this now to a clinical trial, 
And so we're doing a trial at Mass General and Dana-Farber where we're treating 43 patients with the combination of leflunamide and uh, a BRAF inhibitor or a BRAF inhibitor and a MEK inhibitor. And uh, basically um, seeing if we can um, extend the lifespan of the patients with metastatic melanoma. And we've treated three patients so far and hopefully we'll go to the 43 patients over a certain period of time, and we'll find out if this therapy actually works. Well, I love that. Attacking cancer, uh, death by identity crisis. That's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's, you know what's really cool for me, Yosef, is we, you know, I, I like to say myself, Yosef, we are these we are these new wave stem cell stem cell uh, scientists. You know, we're in this uh, ES and IPS field, and we have these very human that everyone would say relevant models that we're using. But it's 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 still it's obviously very clear that there are other more simple models that can translate very nicely to the human system. And this is a, this is a, obviously a very good. Uh, indication and, and proof of that, and that's that's pretty amazing that you can because it's all about the mod. If you have a great model, it makes your assays and your experiments so much easier because you know exactly what to look for. Yeah, I, I think having a any model is is very valuable to understand uh, what's going on at a basic level and also for disease. You know, um, we also work with uh, human iPS cells, and uh, I think they're in- incredibly valuable, and I hope that as um, the stem cell field continues, they'll become even more valuable. You know, we found that the fish has been a very rapid assay, and the things that we've learned in the fish, at least conceptually, have translated to humans. Um, we had another story where we screened for small molecules that could increase blood stem cells in a fish embryo. And we found a derivative of prostaglandin E2 could actually increase blood stem cells substantially. And um, we then showed in a mouse bone marrow transplant that you could take this prostaglandin chemical and give it to mouse bone marrow, and you would get about a fourfold increase in the number of stem cells that engrafted. And this is very clinically relevant. So we took this small molecule actually to the clinic recently, and we treated 12 patients who um, have uh, leukemia. They're getting um, high-dose chemotherapy to erase their leukemia, and then they're going to receive um, stem cells from um, a cord blood. And cord blood works really well, um, but there are very few stem cells in each cord. And so what we did is um, we took patients who were going to get two cord bloods and we treated one of them with this chemical and left the other one untreated. And we put them both into the patient and the clinical trial actually happened in the patient. And the hypothesis would be that the treated cord would be the one that would actually win and engraft. And that's um, what we saw in 12 patients. Um, 10 out of 12 patients, the treated cord was the one that engrafted. And the neutrophils from those came in four and a half days earlier from the platelets, uh, from the controls uh, historically. So that's a phase one trial, and now that's in a phase two trial. So, um, again, I think that's, that was our first story where we actually translated something from the fish into the patients. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Uh, I guess uh, we can move on, but uh, I really uh, find that model <laughs> to go from zebrafish to actual human clinical trials is uh, it's quite quite the leap, and uh, uh, congratulations on that. Yeah, it's been fun. I, I don't know if you saw our recent cell paper where we had, uh, this was an IPS story with Amy Wager's lab, where we had a um, 
we found that you could culture zebrafish blastomeres at the thousand cell stage and just plate them. And they formed balls of tissue, uh, particularly balls of muscle. Muscle, yeah, I think I saw this, yeah. Yeah, so we ended up doing a screen and we found chemicals that would stimulate myogenesis in a dish from zebrafish uh, uh, cells. And then we took those chemicals and showed if you give them to human IPS cells, um, then you could stimulate skeletal muscle development from the human IPS cells. So now we're very excited about being able to do things with the uh, IPS cells that are you know, with the IPS derived skeletal muscle, and hope that we can take that to the clinic also. See that all those years of evolution and those pathways are still conserved. You know, it's it's pretty awesome. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Now I have a question about your models, uh, the zebrafish. I saw some great work. I'm pretty sure it came from your lab at ISSCR last year in Boston, and uh, the the melanomas looked to me like melanomas on the fish. I was wondering uh, two things about the zebrafish. Uh, did the do the melanomas metastasize with the fish? Did they just hop off them or stay within the the, the zebrafish? And also, um, uh, well, well, why don't you answer that first? Sure. So, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting model for metastasis. I'd say that the lymphatics are present in the fish, but they don't have lymph nodes, from, at least from what I know. And so they're not as much of a metastatic model as you might hope. Um, so we see metastasis, but it's a rare event. More likely when we see a, have a devastating melanoma, it will actually um, uh, invade. So I think it's a great model to look at invasion, but hasn't, at least at the genetic models, been able to look at metastasis so much. But there is a postdoc, Rich White, who's at Sloan Kettering, who has really spectacular data on looking at the spread of melanoma cells, um, looking at transplanted cells and being able to watch those cells migrate. And um, we invented a, a fish called uh, Casper, which is completely transparent. Um, and so you can see even in adults the cells migrate. So, um, so I think it can be a model, but at least at the level of the genetically engineered models that we have, those cells don't seem to want to spread very far. Yeah, and in terms of development, do they have this aorta, gonad, mesonephros? We, we had a whole podcast on that, and that was one of our yeah, favorite words. Do they, do they, do, uh, what's the development? Because f- the fish are, they're cold blooded, right? Or, or, I mean, yeah, yeah. it seems like, uh, yeah. the developmental system may be a little bit different, but I don't know, to be honest. Yeah, actually, it's amazingly similar. So, um, we see the, um, uh, stem cells in the aorta develop. Um, they actually migrate in a, ver- in a mammal, they migrate and form clusters inside the aorta and go off into circulation in the aorta. In the fish, for some reason, they migrate ventrally and enter into circulation through the vein. Um, but short of that, uh, the birth of the stem cells looks very, very similar. Those stem cells go off into circulation and end up colonizing uh, a region we call the caudal hematopoietic territory, which is very similar to a fetal liver. And we've been studying the engraftment process. So at least those stages of development are very, very similar. 300 million years of evolution, the same process. Your stem cells are born in the aorta. Okay, awesome. So why don't we uh, why don't we transition here, Yos? And and I'd like to get 
Dr. Zahn's take on on our question. We typically ask our guests in terms of stem cell and a therapy. Now, as a hematologist, you you've been around stem cell therapies for for as long as you've been in that field, correct? Because I don't I still think that people don't understand bone marrow transplantation uh, is is a form of a stem cell uh, therapy, the most successful one, obviously that we have, and so. With that, where do you see the next wave? You know, we know all this research that's going on. We talked about IPS and regenerative medicine and, and things like there's There's also drug drug screens using disease-in-a-dish models. So uh, g- give us your take and your pulse of the field and where, where you likely see some, some, some therapies or some men- uh, regenerative medicines uh, coming, coming soon, if you will. Sure. Well, I, I feel that the um, first place where we'll see um, therapies arise will be similar to what we've done in the fish, to be able to do chemical screening in the human iPS cells, and uh, particularly starting with individual uh, diseases and trying to cure those diseases in a dish. I think there will be a number of therapies that are clearly worth taking into the clinic, and um, so that's going to happen, I would say, over the coming year, two years or so, um, I think we'll start to see some chemicals go to the clinic, similar to what we've done in the fish. I think that um, that will work well. Um, I'd love to see the field get to a point of transplanting tissue from IPS cells into patients. And um, on a personal note, I'd love to see us do that for blood stem cells. Um, As you may know, only 50% of patients have a match uh, for a, yeah. a, a donor um, in terms of bone marrow transplantation. So it would be wonderful for the other 50% to take skin biopsies or uh, blood cells from them and reprogram them to become iPS cells and then to uh, derive blood stem cells from those uh, cells and then put them into patients and cure their disease. Um, sometimes yeah. we'll need to genetically correct those stem cells and that can easily be done now with CRISPR technology and so I feel like we're in a place where transplanted tissues are going to happen pretty quickly. We know there's a couple trials for the retina. Um, very excited about those trials. Um, I think blood stem cells uh, has been tough, but I think we'll eventually get there. Uh, there's some th- thoughts about doing pancreatic islet cells, um, which uh, could be interesting. And uh, I'd like to see those muscle cells get tra- uh, transplanted also. So, um, you know, I think we're into a wave where um, we look at transplantation as a therapy. Um, If you go back many years ago, um, let's say to 1975, and, you know, there was a discussion about stem cell transplants back then, about bone marrow transplantation, and nobody had done it at that time, and there were identical twin studies uh, showing efficacy, and... uh, you know, you would never have imagined the incredible industry right now going on in marrow transplants and cord blood transplants uh, that arose from those days. So it takes time, uh, you know, and I think, um, you know, we do thousands of transplants every year. Um, in, uh, and so I think that uh, hopefully we'll see that from IPS cells uh, and it'll just take some time to develop the infrastructure to be able to do that. Okay, great. And uh, finally, we uh, always like to end on some comic relief. Uh, could you share a funny story, uh, either from your postdoc days or being a professor or, you know, anything throughout the whole process that you'd like to share to make us laugh, perhaps? <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, um, I'll tell you about my very first zebrafish experience. <laughs> so um, at this point, it was 1993. 
And um, a professor from Northeastern University, Bill Gietrich, had signed on to do a sabbatical in my lab and start the zebrafish field. And Bill is a fish expert. He, is, he spends three months a year in Antarctica, and he works on the Antarctic ice fish. And um, the fish has deleted all of its red blood cells. It's so cold in the Antarctic that it doesn't need its red blood cells. What? And uh, so he really is some fantastic work. And uh, But he wanted to start doing some zebrafish work. And so we came to a, a, a certain day and time, and we said it's time that we get zebrafish um, in the lab. So I didn't know much about fish, so I felt I should go to the pet store and buy a tank. So I bought a 30-gallon tank. And uh, we put the tank in the lab. And then I asked one of my friends, Wolfgang Drever, where do you get zebrafish? And he said, well, what he does is um, there's a farm called Equal Farms um, in Florida, and they will ship you zebrafish. And, um, and so they, they supply his lab. And so why don't you go call them? So I call up the Aquil Farms and I say, I'd like to get some zebrafish. Could you send me some? And they said, well, you know, we're one of the largest pet store suppliers in the in the country. And so um, we can only do it in, in aliquots of 400 fish. And uh, so I said, I, I only need probably 20 or 30. But, you know, uh, they said, well, we only do 400. So you have to take 400. So, um so then they say, um, we can't ship to Children's Hospital. <clears throat> you have to pick up the fish. And um, we're doing a shipment uh, in Boston in um, a couple weeks, so we can arrange for you to you know, get this shipment. So, um, so what they arrange is that we're going to meet on the uh, mass, uh, mass Turnpike, <laughs> and we're basically going to transfer the fish from their truck into my car. So... First of all, we stop off. We are the only cars at the stop that they picked. And this clearly looks like a drug truck. Because okay? I basically, it's this little tiny truck, and I, he opens up the trunk of the truck, and I basically get this box, and I quickly put the box into my trunk, you know. So, so then I drive it to Children's Hospital, and I'm, um, we're going, we put the 400 fish into the 30 gallon tank. And, um, you know, the fish look happy to me, and we're just kind of hanging out. And, and Bill is a fish expert, so he should be able to deal with all this. And, um, and so the fish are doing fine, and we're doing some experiments and everything. And so then about four days into this, all of a sudden, one of the fish kind of goes and turns sideways and floats to the top. Oh, no. And we're going like, oh, wow, that's really strange. You know? And then another fish does it. And within about 20 minutes like 30% of the fish just float to the top. And, of course, these fish were under nitrogen debt, and they, uh, we hadn't you know, done the right things. Of uh, It was just too many fish for this uh, 30-gallon tank. And so the scene in the lab where all these postdocs and students are scooping up the fish and getting fresh water and trying to revive the fish, and, and it was, it's unbelievable when you look now, we have 300 fish that are incredibly well cared for that we would have had this, uh, this first episode where we're crazy in the laboratory trying to save all these fish. So, I, I would have been amazing if the, a cop would have pulled you over on the mass turnpike to see what was in that box and then he opened exactly. up the box. <laughs> well, I do have my, my other story, which I'll tell you. Actually, you reminded me of a good story, so I'll give you one more, which is um, – so I um, – 
many years ago, um, we had a collaboration with Yanni Neuslein um, from Tübingen, Germany. And Yanni won the Nobel Prize for embryogenesis in Drosophila and uh, describing the embryonic axes. And um, so she developed a large zebrafish facility. And so I happened to visit her. Uh, in one meeting, she asked me to come and give a lecture. And um, my lab heard that I, um, that I was going there and they wanted a bunch of strains for her to, for me to bring back. And I said, well, I'm there, I'll bring the strains back. And, and this was certainly before 9-11, so this was, it wasn't quite as, you know, rigorous of what people were doing. So I, um, basically over in Tubigan and, uh, the technician comes to me on the last day and she hands me a duffel bag, um, a huge army duffel bag. And I'm talking like maybe eight feet or so. Oh, wow. So, um, and in there are 50 zebrafish strains. And many fish and everything. And so I'm thinking, like, this is crazy. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. So the first thing I get to the Stuttgart um, airport, and I'm trying to figure out, like, do you put these fish through the irradiator, you know, to, to, to see what's there? And I, I don't want to cause any problems, and I don't know what to do. So I just put it through. And so the bag goes through, and then the guard says, come here. And he opens it up, and and I'm like, oh God, he's gonna, I'm gonna have to go back. I'm gonna miss my plane. I don't know. And so then he opens up the, and he looks at the fish, and he goes, oh fish. And then he puts them back in, and he says, go ahead, you can go forward. So now I'm on the plane, and I'm, um, and I feel like the, I put the fish. I checked all of my bags except for the fish, and the fish are now above my seat. And so I figure I better check on them, make sure they're okay. So I go to check on them, and believe it or not, one of the tanks had cracked. Oh, And man. it's leaking water all over the top uh, <laughs> of this, um, in this compartment. So then I ask the uh, stewardess, and I say, do you think I could get some napkins? And, uh, and so I, every, like, hour I'm adding this, you know, uh, area so that it won't get so wet. So basically this trip was going very, very poorly. And I ended up um, patting down the fish every hour, and I was getting sick of this, and I ended up getting a card from the stewardess, and it says you have to fill out your declaration when you go off into the, back into the United States. So I look at the form, and it says, are you bringing meat or fish back into the country? <laughs> And I'm so frazzled by this whole experience that I just decide I'm just going to check yes. So I check yes, and then I'm thinking, God, you know, they're going to stop me, and I'm not going to be able to get into the country. And so anyway, I go forward, and I get all the way through to the end, and I have the duffel bag. And the guy says to me, I see here that you are bringing meat into the country. And I say, no, I'm actually bringing fish. And he says, oh, okay, that's fine. And then he lets me through. <laughs> wow. That's Wait, like, but what happened to the fish, Lam? Were they okay? They were all fine. Every, every fish was fine, and we put them back in our facility. I went straight to Children's and put them into the facility, and they were great. Oh, man, that's funny. Do you have meat or fish? Yes, actually, I have fish. <laughs> I'm I'm still focused on postdocs trying to resuscitate dying zebrafish. <laughs> it was tough, I'll tell you. So I think just before we close and end this, I, I want to just take one minute 
uh, Len, if you wouldn't just mind, you know this whole Stapp story that's going all over the place. Uh, I'd just like to get your take on it quickly. You know, we hear a lot now, you know, there's possible retraction, and they're, they basically made it a crime scene in the lab. No one's allowed in. And we hear a lot from Japan. And we, we haven't really heard a lot from what's going on, on the uh, in Boston. You know, there was a Boston component to this. And so I'm just wondering, you're in Boston. What are you hearing, and, and what is your take on this whole situation so far? Yeah, you know, I think it's a tough situation. Um Obviously, there's been an experiment that's done and published, and you have to, when you're reviewing these manuscripts, it's very difficult to know what work has gone into them. And you have to take everything at face value. So if you look at a certain cell and the cell has changed its fate in some way, you have to kind of believe what the uh, authors are saying. And... um, so I think that I wasn't a reviewer for this manuscript, but I'm sure whoever was reviewing, you know, was pretty critical to try to figure out were there issues. Um, but it wasn't obvious at the time uh, that there were issues. I felt um, at the very beginning that this was a very simple experiment. And that experiment could be replicated in a very short period of time by a number of labs. So you would have thought that the authors would have contacted all of their friends and had them repeat the experiment before they published it just because it's such a simple experiment and you would know over a three-month period uh, whether this would be correct or not. And, uh, you know, you have the ISSCR meeting coming up in June. We would expect everybody to either have been reproduced these stap cells or not by then. So it's a little strange that you would do such a simple experiment and put it out there if you didn't think it was right. Um, having said that, there's clearly problems with the paper based on uh, figures, uh, and there's a lot of people who think that uh, it just doesn't work in their hands. So I think if the efficacy of this is not enough, uh, you know, is not a major uh, leap forward, then, you know, the manuscript should probably be retracted and people go back to, uh, you know, a, uh, a state where they can reinvestigate. And uh, if it does become a robust technology, then more power to the authors. That's great. But at the current moment, I think there's uh, too many issues with the current manuscript. Well, I, uh, that sounds correct to me. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So uh, Yeah, I, you know, and for the fact that it's been, I know that this has been in the works for a long time, this study. So you would imagine, just like you said, that other people would have given other people an opportunity to to do this protocol, say, look, you know, we're getting a lot of resistance. Why don't you guys try it? You try it. Let's see what we know. But that doesn't seem to have done. I'm with you. I guess we'll wait and see how it goes. It's just in in today's world of blogging and social media, this is just everywhere. It's amazing to see a scientific story so prominent everywhere. It's pretty wild. Yeah, almost at every single meeting I've been at, I've been asked what I think about those cells. And, um, you know, it's it's tough because I also, you know, I was president of ISSCR during the Wong uh, experiment in Korea. And, um, you know, everybody was so excited by those experiments. And then to find out that they didn't, they weren't really true, uh, that was tough. And I think, again, our field is interesting. When you work with cells and cells can do a lot of different things, it's hard to quality assure exactly what's going on. And uh, I think that 
that's our field, but it's going to mean that we're going to have to do some healing um, if the manuscript is retracted. Yeah, that whole <clears throat> Wu Suk Wang controversy. <clears throat> sorry, um, the similarities are are amazing because the first thing was uh, the duplication of figures, and then Scadden sort of pulled out, and the same sort of thing is happening with this paper: uh, duplication of figures, and one of the authors is recommending retraction, and now it's even seeming that the Obokata's dissertation is even in question now so uh i've seen links to that that there was some plagiarism issues but uh we'll see how this all plays out in the end it's a, it's a similar uh sort of uh cracks in the dam if you will um that seemed to be occurring yeah. so um we'll see what how it all pans out and then uh so uh just to wrap up the interview we were wondering if uh, you'd be able to stick around for a quick uh, rant of ours Sure. Yeah. All right. We'd like to get the guests in the rant. So before we go to the rant, thanks. Thank you for your for your you know coming on and telling us about your work. It's pretty amazing and 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 in a in a very cool model and really to show everyone how how simple systems uh, can really work and translate to something uh, beneficial for human. So thank you. Yeah, so, my pleasure. All right, Yos, what do we got today? So uh, this week, actually, I, I, I have to address um, something that uh, came out last week in Science Magazine. Uh, somebody, actually, that I went to graduate school with um, who went and did a postdoc over at uh, Yale uh, apparently got caught sabotaging work. So this is a rant about sabotage in science. And it's hard to imagine that anybody would do this, but sometimes in rare occasions this does happen where uh, you have some sort of internecine uh, co- confrontation within the lab where I guess one person starts sabotaging the experiments of another. And since this had to deal with um, zebrafish and uh, the spiking of uh, zebrafish cultures with ethanol, uh, this was actually caught on film uh, apparently by Yale and the lab, and the postdoc was subsequently fired Um I just thought this is something we need to rant about, sabotage so, in lab. For me, I can't believe that this – I mean, I, I'm not that naive. I'm sure it does go on. But in, in our setting and in any, every setting, we have a lot of things to worry about as it is. You know, Experiments inherently don't work a lot of the time. Things need to be repeated constantly. Everything is very regimented and routine. And then the last thing you really want to have to think about – is that there's an there's an element of possible sabotage that someone's going to actually willingly destroy or mess up your experiments, and that's just crazy to me. Except I've been I have been uh, in my career so far. There have been two cases of this uh, that I've I've not been involved with, but been in you know in a lab or in a, with somebody who's told me stories about this. So it does go on. I'm assuming. I don't know, Len, if you've heard stories in the past about this, but it's just something that I feel like. It's the last thing we need to be thinking about when we're in the lab. Yeah, it's a very sad thing when this type of thing happens. Um, there's a lot of labs out there, and so by chance, there's going to be some bad actors that happen. And um, what happens often is a jealousy type of thing where a particular postdoc thinks one PI likes them better than another, and, and so you end up with... Uh, you know, sabotaging of experiments. This happened uh, to one of my friends, a uh, very similar experience, uh, also caught on tape, uh, sabotaging cell cultures. Um, and then when you try to corner the person who did it, uh, often they 
decide to leave the lab, leave the country. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to figure out. And nobody wins in this situation. It's a, uh, you know, it's years of research, it's money, it's uh, your own time. And you even, during the time of sabotage, you even question your own kind of approach, which I think is very sad. And so it right. can have a, a damaging uh, appearance. Uh, one of the sabotage things that I heard recently, which I, I thought was pretty amazing, is um, one guy, one of, the, of my friend's labs they do a lot of cell culture. And they realized that there was um, a lot of their cultures were becoming contaminated. And they threw out all their old media and they basically made new media. And then again, it was contaminated. And they just couldn't figure this out because it just kept on happening over a six-month period of time. And um, so... They finally decided to check every single reagent that was going on in the lab. And it turned out that they purchased saline from a company so that it would be sterile. And they reconstituted some of their media with this saline. And it turned out that the saline had been spiked with bacteria. They called up the lab, the company that sold the saline. And they said, oh, you know, our product is fantastic. There's no way. But it turned out there was a disgruntled employee in the company who was spiking bacteria into the saline. And so that was causing the contamination. Wow. Wow. So even though, again, you know, it doesn't have to be even a lab. It could just be somebody in a company who's disgruntled and you end up getting, uh, uh, this kind of thing. So it's, wow. this, this, is the, this is the equivalent of going postal in research. I mean, like, or cutting off your nose to spite your face. I mean, to think as a PI, you do so much work to get the money, get the lab, and hire the postdocs and personnel and techs, and somewhere in your own lab, you could have this fifth column, like, trying to, you know, take down the whole, at least one portion of of the lab's work. And, and I just can't believe people do this stuff and what what can motivate it but it's so egregious and and it, it just nothing good ever comes of it i don't understand why yeah and you know len for me as, as someone who's recently started a lab and and i talk to young investigators like myself in this and like you said sometimes you start to question yourself you know no one really teaches or has taught us how to be lab how to manage anything right. in grad school right and so when you have a team and you're, you should be collaborative and all for a common goal, uh, but you want to make sure everyone in the lab has their own individual presence and project that may, keeps them motivated as for, for their own self. But uh, trying to balance keep, you know, that your, this is your project and this is, uh, this is the overall project. Uh, nowadays, I imagine for, for you, Len, with, with a very big lab, um, it's tricky and it's hard because, like you said, you want to make sure everyone's getting the proper attention. It's like having a, a lot of kids, right? Um, <laughs> and and I can imagine that when when you hear of things like that, you immediately might start questioning yourself and like, "Wow, what did I not do? How can I do this different?" So, and then and then the whole lab dynamic gets thrown off. God, I mean, right. I can imagine if someone gets accused of sabotage in a lab, now everyone's looking over their shoulder, and it just becomes a horrible thing. So I guess there's just there's a lot of components to this that are just, you know, and, and all 
it's it's not good. It has no place. And like you said, there's always going to be a few bad apples that are going to do something like this. But I hope it's in the very small minority for sure. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, but one of the things that you brought out, which I think is very important, particularly for the young investigators, is that um, it's very important to establish your lab culture almost immediately. And um, there are plenty of different styles, so there isn't one style that absolutely works for each person. But, um, you know, there are some laboratories that are incredibly friendly. There are some laboratories that are very critical, very rigorous. There are some that like to party together. But um, if you establish that type of culture immediately, then I think you end up with some uh, homogeneity of, uh, and people will buy into the team aspects of the project. You know, having said that, I mean, some of the, my friends who've had this happen are, are very famous people who have very good labs and are excellent, excellent mentors. So again, you just don't know where you, where it fits, but I do think there are a few things you can do, um, by establishing lab culture and a collaborative nature within the lab to be able to, um, to prevent or partially prevent things like this. Um, well, on, on that great advice, uh, I think uh, we're just going to have to say thank you for joining us uh, on the Stem Cell Podcast. And um, that was just an excellent interview. So thank you. Great. Well, thank you. It's and for everyone fun. who wants to learn more information about Dr. Zahn's work, all you need to do is type in his name in Google and you will find a plenty of information out there on, on him and his work. We look forward to reading more uh, work and hearing about those clinical trials you talked about. Thanks again. Great. Well, thank you. All, All right, right. Yost, let's, uh, let's sign off here. All right. Bye-bye.